This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Have you heard about the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program? The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leading experts in the field to bring you ROCK, the online learning platform developed for U.S. residency programs. Free to residents, ROCK empowers you to build a foundation to prepare you for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. And remember, access to the ROCK content is free for residents. Get started at rock.aaos.org. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Nail the Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started a podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics. But you are now tuned into our OITE slash our board review series. We are on pediatrics. And let's just hop into today's episode, episode number 11. We're going to talk a little bit about foot conditions, about club foot infections. And this is the audio review featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine. Let's get into it. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Wuwan, we are back again to continue on some some pediatrics, man. We're, we're getting through it. Yeah, it's it's one really one of those that it's tough to get through because as I'm kind of going a little bit ahead in the notes, you you forget about the the genetic things, the the disorders, the like GMFCS, like cerebral palsy stuff, and it's I get it. It's important to know. We need to know it, but it's just not the most intriguing thing in the entire universe. <laughs> not at all, man. Some of the stuff is like you memorize. I mean, some of the stuff you actually see, it, you know, in in practice if you're going to pediatrics. But you know, a lot of the stuff is like these are just facts that you try to try to memorize, like not too long before the test, like all the dysplasias and everything. But we'll continue, I guess, here through foot, and we covered a lot of the same foot and ankle like concepts in our foot and ankle section. So for those listening, you can go and listen to that if y'all want to remember kind of the pathophysiology behind like posterior tip, tendonitis or flat foot or cave of errors foot. Like you can kind of learn those concepts in that. But so today we're going to talk just specifically about some pediatric stuff. And one very common pediatric thing, actually, I saw a good amount in my piece rotation. What is the deformity seen in club foot? Yeah. So club foot, I mean, we get consulted on it fairly routinely at our at our kind of main trauma center because it's also our big like NICU and big birthing center but uh, the deformity you're going to see in club foot is a like a hind foot equinus and varus but then you're going to have midfoot and forefoot adduction and cavus and so their their foot is going to be kind of the sole is going to be turned in toward the midline and their forefoot and their toes are going to be pointing kind of superior. That's that forefoot adduction because the adduction is going towards the midline. The navicular is typically subluxed medially and more plantar on the, on the talus. That's a, I mean, you won't see it on the OITE every year, but it is an OITE question and something that is important to keep in mind because the it's a simple fact-based question that they will ask what is the position of the navicular on the talus and club foot and it's they'll put like lateral and dorsal medial and plantar medial and dorsal blah 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 but it's remember the navicular is sublux medial and plantar on the talus and what is a gene that plays a role in club foot yeah it's going to be pitx-tbx4 and i've seen this on a couple questions at least one or two as an answer for a couple of them 
But again, so for Clubfoot, it's going to be PITX-TBX4. It kind of works with the transcriptional pathway and is associated with hind foot formation. So again, that's going to be PITX-TBX4 is the gene associated with Clubfoot. Now, what are some other conditions that Clubfoot are, you know, is associated with? So things like arthrogryposis, myelomeningocele, which is like a spina bifida, amniotic band syndrome, diastrophic dysplasia. And because they are associated with these other either neuromuscular disorders, connective tissue disorders, or packaging disorders like the amniotic band syndrome, they're typically more difficult to treat because they, they have an underlying symptomatology that has led to this. And so you oftentimes can't treat that underlying symptomatology that led to it. And so they have a kind of a more recurrence rate or a more difficult to treat non-surgically incidents. And so they may require more surgical intervention. And so what is the treatment for clubfoot? Yeah. So this is the famous Ponsetti casting and order of the casting is actually almost the same as the acronym CAVE. So Initially, you fix the cavus first with your first cast, and then your following cast, you fix the adductus and the varus, and then last down the line, you fix the equinus, which sometimes can persist of a percutaneous Achilles tenotomy. I think back in the day, I know some people do this in clinic, but some people do this in the OR still. I think that might be one of those things that a lot of pediatric guys talk about. But again, so you fix the cavus first, the adductus, the varus, and the equinus last with the percutaneous Achilles tenotomy. Afterwards, you have them in some sort of a bracing. So you have them in a foot abduction or throsis-based brace, which is used after the casting. And one of the things I've seen as a couple of times is that, you know, you need to wear the braces. Sometimes if you don't wear the braces and you can have some recurrence of the club foot. So brace compliance is going to be associated with better outcomes. And, you know, some of the things that you should know about club foot is when it recurs, you're going to treat it with repeat manipulation and bracing. And if if necessary, a, doing a posterior medial release, which one of my attendings is, is real old school. And, and this is one of his go-to things. You know, Z does a lot of them. So I've actually seen at least like seven or eight of these or maybe even nine or more uh, when I was on my pediatrics rotation for clubfoot. But again, that's one of the things that's if, if necessary. So what is the treatment of choice? For a patient with a history of clubfoot now that has kind of dynamic supination while they walk. So the dynamic part is key to know this because it's it's more of something that can be passively correctable. And because it's dynamic, it's usually related to a like a muscular insertion. So you can do an anterior tibialis to the lateral cuneiform transfer. And basically what that does is because the tib ant inserts medially on the foot, if you move it more to the center of the foot, it's not going to have that supination pull on it when they walk. And so they're going to be not walking or putting weight bearing on the lateral portion of the foot when they walk because that tib ant isn't going to pull them medial. And uh, moving on from kind of club foot, what is the x-ray you get to view and evaluate for congenital vertical talus? Yeah, and it's going to be a lateral x-ray that is in some plantar flexion. And, and I mean, these are pretty obvious on the x-rays. Like you'll see the talus is, is, is oriented vertically. Again, so the view that we want to evaluate for congenital vertical talus is going to be a lateral x-ray in plantar flexion. And what you'll see is that the first metatarsal axis is going to be above of the talus. And you won't be able to see it in the navicular yet because it's not ossified. But again, so the first metatarsal axis is going to be above the talus. And that's that should clue you in towards a congenital vertical talus. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. If you're an orthopedic resident 
It's time to start building the foundation to be prepared for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leaders in the field to bring you the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program. Rock is an all-in-one online learning platform covering 11 subspecialties. You can access the content for free at rock.aaos.org. This platform delivers a comprehensive, structured, standardized curriculum and even includes self-assessment quizzes and performance analytics. And remember, residents never pay to access rock content. Get started today at rock.aaos.org. And so what is the treatment for a congenital vertical talus? So it's something I don't understand. So for those of you that are looking for more of a better description of the Ponsetti technique or even the Ponsetti, the reverse Ponsetti method, then I, I'm not going to be able to help you out, but it's essentially it's called the reverse Ponsetti method. So first thing you're going to want to do is reduce the dorsal navicular dislocation on the talus. You're going to stretch the foot into plantar flexion and inversion. And then that may have to be, that, that joint may, may have to be released, the talonavicular joint released and then pinned so that the talus can no longer sublux inferior to the navicular. And because the kind of hind foot is in equinus because of this congenital vertical talus, you are most likely going to have to do an Achilles tenotomy to bring that hind foot back down so that the talus can sit more in line with the navicular. And then you pin that in place and let them kind of scar in that way. But 50% of a congenital vertical talus is due to either a genetic or neuromuscular cause. And that's why there's such a quick transition into surgery, because it's unlikely that these are going to stay with non-surgical methods, especially if they're due to an underlying genetic or neuromuscular cause. And then one other kind of pediatric foot deformity, calcaneovalgus foot. What's the cause and treatment of calcaneovalgus feet? Yeah, so this is going to be hyperdorsiflexion of the foot due to intrauterine positioning. And if you Google calcaneovalgus foot, you'll know, you'll see quite the picture and, you'll, and it should stick in your mind like, okay, this is a calcaneovalgus foot. And they'll just put the pictures up sometimes so you got to know what it looks like. And again, it's going to be due to hyperdorsiflexion of the foot due to intrauterine positioning. And you treat this with observation. And if anything, just some stretching, but likely these resolve on their own. Again, so these, these resolve on their own for the most part. And a lot of the other things that a lot of the other foot and ankle conditions like tarsal coalitions, which we talked about in the foot and ankle section, pesplanovalgus and cablevarus feet are all covered in the uh, foot and ankle section. And treatment is typically so pretty, pretty similar to the pediatric patients. Now, uh, moving forth and kind of touching on infections, how how can a child, I guess, with a musculoskeletal infection present if, you know, you just look at it, your pediatric patient? Yeah, pediatric patients have such a high reserve from a kind of a vital sign standpoint. So they usually don't present very sick. They may have a limp. They may refuse to bear weight on the affected limb. They may have, the parents may say, you know what? Yeah, they had a, a cough or a runny nose a week before. Very rarely are they febrile unless it's a very severe infection. They can have some tenderness to palpation for an abscess. And the the big thing is the joint is held in a position that maximizes the joint volume if we're talking about septic arthritis. So 
for example, the hip, if the hip is in about 15 degrees of flexion, 15 degrees of abduction, and 15 degrees of external rotation, that's that's the point where the hip capsule can stretch out the most and is the most comfortable for the patient. For the knee, I think it's something like 20 degrees of flexion for the knee is the point where the joint capsule has the most opportunity to expand. And so the, the knee may be held in slight flexion if you're concerned about septic arthritis of the knee. And then laboratory values, similar to an adult, they may have an increased white blood cell count with like a neutrophil shift. And those sort of things will be on the test. Like they may say, hey, this child has a white blood cell count of 12, which isn't particularly high, but it may be like 90% neutrophils in their blood, which means that something acute is going on. And then they'll have elevated ESR and CRP. And just as a reminder, the CRP is the lab value that you want to monitor over time because it has the fastest drop out of the system, whereas ESR takes a while to uh, decrease. And so when should blood cultures and joint fluid analysis be performed? Yeah. I mean, ideally before you start antibiotics, you know, is, is the time to, the thought process is you don't want to start to give the patient a whole bunch of IV antibiotics and then start to get blood cultures because it may mask an infection possibly. So again, ideally blood cultures and aspirations of the knee or whatever joint should be performed before antibiotics are are started, if the patient is clinically okay. And also, if patients are less than five years old, one of the organisms that you had to, microorganisms you had to be on the lookout for is Kingella. So you have to send the analysis for a PCR in patients under five. And so, so what imaging is useful when you're looking or when you're evaluating for a pediatric musculoskeletal infection? As soon as adults, you want to first get an x-ray. For septic arthritis, you may see a joint effusion. If it's osteomyelitis, you may, if it's early osteomyelitis, may not show much, but after about a week or two, you may see either some bony erosion or periosteal bone formation. If there's some sort of like subperiosteal abscess, that periosteum that's trying to contain that may start to calcify at about one to two weeks, but definitely looking for some sort of periosteal reaction, which can present very similar to a tumor, but the patients are going to present to you a little bit differently. You can always use an ultrasound to identify a subperiosteal abscess in a patient that's either not going to tolerate an MRI or you don't have the capabilities of doing an MRI because they may need sedation and it's at a point where they're unable to get the sedation. And then the, the true one you're going to look for, especially for infections, is going to be an MRI with and without contrast. And that's what's going to be able to delineate a subperiosteal abscess versus an osteomyelitis versus a myositis and a joint effusion. And then at some centers, you have the capability to do this. It's called a technetium 99 bone scan, and that can show areas of multifocal infection. So that like CRMO, that chronic recurrent multifocal osteomyelitis. And so what are some of the differential diagnoses for a suspected pediatric musculoskeletal infection? Yeah. So, you know, you have to think about septic arthritis. So again, if you, things that are including towards septic arthritis, if you get a joint aspiration and the cell count is greater than 50,000 white blood cells, you know, they have a high percent of polymer PMNs, greater than 90% or so. Another thing you think of is to toxic synovitis in these pediatric patients, in which case their cell count will not be over 50,000, but it will be between five and 15,000. Another thing is juvenile idiopathic arthritis. So they present something like with a pediatric patient that had a rash, 
Uh, they had a fever for a couple of weeks on and off. This is, again, more of an auto, autoimmune condition, and they're having kind of pain in multiple joints. And their cell count could be anything from 15,000 all the way up to 80,000. So they have a wide cell count range where you definitely need to take part in and understand some of the different ways or the way that this will present versus, you know, something else. Another thing is leukemia. Acute leukemia can also be on a differential diagnosis. But if you look at the last for these patients, sometimes they'll have anemia, thrombocytopenia, or neutropenia, again, in about 80% of the patients, not all the times, but most of the time. And on the blood smear, they'll have immature leukocytes. So that'll clue you in towards acute leukemia. And osteosarcoma, now we're getting into your, your kind of realm here. And then, so osteosarcoma, these will have, you know, more of a metaphyseal lesion. They may have some mixed lytic and sclerotic components. Their labs may be a little bit more normal. Achondroblastoma is another thing that could bear a differential. And the, sometimes these patients may have some localized, localized tenderness, and, uh, and this will have a well-demarcated epiphyseal lytic lesion. So again, this is in the ep- epiphyses. And also metastatic neuroblastoma. And for this, if they have lab values and they tell you like they have an elevated homophenolytic acid or like mandelic acid, those may clue you in towards a metablastic neuroblastoma. And it may also have a metaphyseal lesion. So there are a lot of... in, in Summary, there are a lot of different things that it could be, but you have to be able to take into the account on the patient picture, their overall conditions, and, and get you clued into some of the labs and how they appear on x-rays and where the lesions are, including into what's going on. Now, why is the, out of all the places, when we always talk about acute hematogenous osteomyelitis, the metaphysis is many times affected. So why is the metaphysis a common area for infection in acute hematogenous osteomyelitis? The metaphysis, so it's where all of the bone growth is happening. And so like right at that metaphysis and and physis, because our bones grow from the metaphyseal side, essentially, or mostly rather than the epiphyseal side. And so because of that, there's a, a lot of blood flow to that area. And because we want a lot of exchange of nutrients to help these bones grow, these slower capillary beds are going to allow for the bacteria to also get through the capillary walls and hold on in the metaphyseal bone. So while it's good for bone growth, it's bad for infection because it's really rich in blood, but it's also very slow kind of traffic jam area where the bacteria can get out of the bloodstream and and seed the bone. And this is definitely going to be asked at some point, either on your boards or OITE, what is the most common pathogen in pediatric musculoskeletal infections? And the most common is almost always Staph aureus, Staph aureus, Staph aureus. Other things you need to consider depending on their age. If they're less than one year old, consider GBS or group B strep. And if they're between one and five years old, again, consider um, Kingella, which we talked about a little bit earlier that you have to send those labs for the PCR. Also, strep pneumonia is another one that you may need to know in those patients that are aged one to five. We hope that you all enjoyed this episode. We enjoyed making it and we hope that you all learned something from it. Now, if you have not already, go and check out the podcast companion book because that goes right along with everything that we're talking about. We have a link in the description if you want to get it and you want to take notes. And uh, if you like it, please leave us a review. That would help us out a bunch. All right. Until next time.